I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Are you looking for that perfect gift idea this holiday season? I think we all are. Well, let me suggest Livewire Spring 2019 Season Passes, which go on sale Saturday, December 22nd. I don't know if you know this, but we are celebrating our 15th anniversary this spring, and we have some incredible shows lined up and some incredible guests that I know you are going to want to see. Now, Livewire shows sell out early. I think in the last two seasons we've sold out, if not every show, just about every show. Maybe there was one ticket way in the back of the theater. Um, But these tickets go real fast. And if you sign up for a season pass, you will be able to get first crack at tickets. You'll be guaranteed a seat for every show. And it's a good deal. It's significantly cheaper than paying the individual ticket price. Or maybe you've been thinking about becoming a member of Livewire, one of our League of Extraordinary Listeners. Or you know that some special person in your life would love to be able to say they are a member of Livewire. Well, now is a great time to sign yourself up and sign your friends up. Your membership is tax deductible. You're going to get exclusive pre-sale access to buy your season pass. And you'll get 15% off the general public price. You can find out about all of this over at livewireradio.org. And we'll see you this spring. Welcome to Livewire, everybody. I'm Luke Burbank. I am your host. Hope you're having a really good week. We have a really good episode of Livewire in store for you. It's another one we recorded in association with the Portland Book Festival. It's an incredible thing that happens in Portland every year where they just bring all kinds of cool writers together and we get to talk to some of those writers. Uh, this week, Tommy Orange is on the show. He has a book called They're There that's getting all kinds of rave reviews. And Lauren Groth is on the show. Her book, Florida, is also getting a rapturous response Although she is one of those writers who says art is not a competition. And so even though the week that we sat down and talked with her, she was up for a big literary award. She was, well, she was not taking the competitive element of that too seriously. uh, Because that's just, I guess, how she's wired. Uh, We've also got stand-up comedy from one of Portland's best comedians, Caitlin Weyerhaeuser. And we have music from Lucy 
Kaplansky. The theme that we picked for the show this particular week was character building, because of course that's something that you do when you are writing a book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Um, we uh, did this show at the Alberta Street Pub in Portland, and I was on stage with our announcer, Elena Passarello, and I was thinking about the, that topic, character building, because she's a writer. She's written a couple of books, and she teaches writing at Oregon State University. But another thing about Elena is that she's also an actor, and so she knows about building a character. So I felt like this was a good show for me to lean on her for that expertise, since I don't really have that. Anyway, let's pick things up on stage at the Alberta Street Pub in Portland. Take a listen to this. Elena, you're a writer, but I know you're also an actor. And one of the things when you're getting ready for a role, it, like the most that I've ever done as far as acting is I played a skateboarder <laughs> in a radio commercial for a car stereo place in Who Seattle. Did you? <laughs> where I had to both say the phrases Blaupunk speaker and goofy-footed stalefish. Wow, that's an intense radio ad. It was. It got real. Um, <laughs> but I'm not like a real actor. You are a real actor. And I'm wondering about the idea of getting into character, like of all the stuff you're supposed to do so that when you are portraying this, 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 this character, you're like, it's believable. Have you ever had to do that? Yeah, and there's like a spectrum of preparation, right? Like there's the people who just kind of jump in and say their lines and don't bump into the furniture. And then there's like the Daniel Day-Lewis types who... Uh, you know, want to make sure that they get to make their own costume choices. And if they're playing like a orangutan hunter, they have to go try to shoot an orangutan. You know, it depends on sort of what your what your level of interest in going like full method. How is. like in your days when you were doing a lot of acting stuff, where were you on that spectrum from Luke doing a car stereo commercial <laughs> to Daniel Day Lewis making his own shoes out of orangutan skin? Where are you on that continuum? Uh, well, I think it changed over time. I think in the beginning, the other thing that was kind of strange about my my journey as an actor was I never got the kinds of parts that you could like officially prepare for. I wasn't playing like a cook and then I could go watch a cook do something. I never had like a ride along because all of the roles were like very strange. I played a dead cow twice. Uh, I got I got the good roles. <laughs> Wait, was it in different plays? Yeah. What was the the role that you did, or did you have a role where you got to actually kind of do some like good character study? Well, I always would, you kind of have to circumnavigate actual preparation and do kind of reasonable facsimiles when you're playing things like dead cows that you could never, you know. So once I played a woman, it was I feel like, like you show up at McDonald's, you go, "Let me see the back room." That's right. That's exactly right. No. Too dark. Oh, too dark. <laughs> I don't know if you know, but that's what's in the burgers. It's weird you made it this Spoiler far in life. <laughs> And you didn't know that, but yeah. Uh. So yeah, but like when I was younger, I took this really seriously and I got this ridiculous part where I played, it was a vampire play and I played this sad woman in one of those like Dolly Madison bonnets whose husband got vampired and then came back to get her. And I was, I decided she was really dirty. So I like had this little dirt box in the back, like the kind of like the closet of the dressing uh -huh. room. And I'd sure. go into the back room and I'd smear the dirt on myself and I'd read Anne Bradstreet poems to myself so I could be ready for this mournful woman, you know, cause I wait, didn't know. Wait, wait, was, were you smearing the dirt on yourself before you went on stage? Yeah. You weren't doing that in your spare time. No, no, okay. no, I did. No, I totally did. I'd be like home alone in the bathtub because I'm a clean person. Like, like kind of like trying to feel like I was this like woman 
woman in this dirt floor house with a stone hearth. Nobody else in the play was doing this. They were just like smoking weed and like, <laughs> so I'd come out and I'd just be like covered with all this red dirt. But then when you get older, that was when I was in my 20s, you don't have to go through all these like hoop jumping things because you're old and you've had experiences. <laughs> you've and been a vampire. I, you have. Your, your husband has come back from the dead and tried I to get you. i had exes call me an emotional vampire. I mean, See? I think that's happened. And you've made them better actors <laughs> because of it. You're, you're saying that basically as you've had more life experience, you don't need to rub dirt on your face because the yeah. world has been rubbing dirt on your face. Exactly. You don't have to get into character. All of a sudden you're saying the lines and, and you think of something and you feel something and then the transference is fine. So that's that's a good thing about getting older is that you can play the vampire widow better. <laughs> We are coming to you this week as part of the Portland Book Festival, and we're talking about character building. Our next guest's latest book, Florida, is full of fascinating characters battling very Florida things, like snakes and sinkholes and contested recounts. <laughs> Not the third one, although I'm just, note to anyone writing a book about Florida, just put that in. It will be evergreen. It will always be relevant to the current events. Uh, Barack Obama said that uh, her last book, Fates and Furies, was his favorite book of that year. She is a delight. We're very glad to have her here. Please welcome Lauren Groff to Livewire. <laughs> Lauren, welcome to Livewire. <laughs> Thank you. This uh, is exciting. Um, when did you move to Florida and why? I, right. I know. I ask myself all the time. Um, so I moved 12 years ago uh, because my husband took over a family business, which I did not know means that you're stuck forever <laughs> in, a, in a place you cannot get out. That's the inheritance yes, of a family business is exactly. that someday you get to come run it. Yes. Well, yes, I don't. Uh, but he does for sure. Yeah. What was the point in living in Florida that you were getting so sort of Florida-tized. That's a word, probably, right? What sure. was the point where you looked around and you thought, okay, I'm actually going to write a book about this place where, where everything that's happening is set in the state of Florida? Well, first of all, have you been to Florida? I have. Right. I, lived, I lived in uh, Miami for a that's while. right. And Elena, yes? I'm from the state above, so I'm yeah. from Florida's hat. So yeah. I spent a lot of time in Florida. All right, so, so, yeah. We say down there, though, you know, uh, North Florida is South Georgia. It is. No, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And I live in North Central Florida. So it's a very particular place, right? Yeah. It's full of swamps and alligators and um, palmetto bugs, which are just flying cockroaches, which go straight mm -hmm. for the eyes. Um, and yeah. it's a very strange place. And I'm from upstate New York where people are pretty buttoned up and we keep our um, flames on the inside. And in Florida, you know, like... They I've just, never heard that <laughs> phrase. I just, I just made it up. <laughs> Thank you. I came to Florida and everything's so messy. Messy, right and humid and swampy and they're hanging chads everywhere and it's all it's all a mess so um it took me a very long time just to understand the state and i, I understood it through actually literature because that's how i interact with humanity were you a kid who was just reading all the time and that was kind of where you felt okay well, yeah, I was also a giant jock. Um, I had uh, 13 varsity letters by the time I graduated from high school. But were you also reading? Yeah, because I didn't want to talk to people, <laughs> right? So when I was exercising, um, I didn't have to talk to people. And then I would go read a book in order to get out of talking to people. So promoting your book must be a blast. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> it's great. I actually really love it because you put on a persona. Mm -hmm. Right. In the, one of the chapters in the book, the character 
because she can't deal with her family, really, she like goes on these night walks and looks at what everybody else in the neighborhood is doing. And that is my favorite thing. Yes. It does that make us voyeurs? Yes, it does. You seem really okay with that. I'm on the <laughs> fence about if that's okay. I feel like my policy is if you're like, if I'm walking on the sidewalk at a normal place and your, you know, blinds are open or whatever, and I can see what you're doing, that's, it's okay for me to look yeah. at you as They're I'm walking asking the asking you to look inside their houses. Absolutely. If the blinds are open, it's free, it's free for you. That's what I feel. Yeah. There is not, as they say, a reasonable expectation of privacy, but I do feel a little weird that I'll go around my neighborhood, I'll keep track of how many people are watching Fox News, mm-hmm. what people are cooking based on what I think it smells like. <laughs> like, and, and just, I'm very, I, that's my favorite time to take a walk is at night when you can really, the whole thing's lit up. I do have to say, so that story is not, not autobiographical <laughs> and I, I, you know, published it first and I have this really good friend who read it and she goes, did you see me naked? Because oh, there's right? a character and, I, and it yeah. was her. What? <laughs> what did you tell her? I told her it was her. Oh, well, yeah, at least you're yeah. honest. That's the right answer. I would have totally lied. We're talking to Lauren Groff. Uh, her new book is Florida, featuring some of her friends and neighbors. Uh, I was going to ask you if there's a character in the book that you most identify with, but is it that character? There's a sort of repeating character sometimes in the first person, sometimes in the third person, and she comes back throughout the... the it's She's like the stitchery of the book. Mm-hmm. And I have a hard time with the biographical fallacy, which is, you know, the, the author being conflated with her book. I, I think that mostly women get conflated with their book. I see. Um, so that's a th- that is a thing that happens commonly, and it's described as the biographical fallacy. Correct. Assuming that if you write about somebody, it must be you. Right. Okay. Right. And so it happens all the time. And it happens particularly with fiction writers. I don't know why. Actually, it may actually happen with nonfiction writers, too. Um, but uh, so with my first book, for instance, um, there's a hysterical pregnancy. And I just happened to be pregnant when I was on the road at, on tour for this. And not once, but twice, people stood up from the audience and were like, are you really pregnant? Oh, my God. <laughs> And I, you know, and I had to be like, I don't know, right? Oh my God, perhaps not. What is, I mean, obviously the people who read books are the, they're the customers. You need people to be interested in the book, but then fielding the questions about the book can be a challenge, I guess. No, it's always a challenge, right? And, and, um, you get to the point where you no longer have any grace left or elegance in your responses and you just let it all out. So yeah, yeah, I've gotten to that point. Really? Are you at that point? With the tour for this book, Florida? Yes. <laughs> so go ahead and ask questions. It's going to be fun. That's ominous. There's a great line. There, snakes make an appearance in this book, and there's a. am kind of paraphrasing, but there's a really great line, something to the effect of, there's a reason Satan didn't appear as a clam? Yes. Oh, you have to give context to it. Yeah, yeah okay, can yeah. you? It's a it's a a man sort of explicating um, the story of Genesis to his wife on a walk, and um, it's a joke, right? He he turns to her and he says, "Well, there's a reason why the the serpent in the Bible was a serpent and not a clam," um, meaning that men are oh, terrible. 
(laughs) (laughs) And in that story, snakes are not only snakes, snakes are also sort of um, the the danger of masculinity. And throughout the book, that's a a, a theme that comes back over and over again, because I, I am raising two small children, two small boys, and I want to learn how to make good men out of um, boys and this really insane environment of toxic masculinity coming from people at the very top of our society. So how do, how, how do you how do you make good men? I don't know. I don't how know. do you? I mean, what are you doing in an attempt for that? I think that my guess is that uh, at this time, during, you know, when we are thankfully, I would say when the non-women of the world, uh, or at least America, are becoming at least a little more aware of how dangerous it is to be a female person in the world, like now that we're getting 5% of it, there's a lot of conversation around how do you raise the next generation so that they have more awareness? Like, what can you actually do? Well, I mean, so I bought these t-shirts for my little boys. I saw this on Twitter. This is what a feminist looks like? This is what a feminist looks like. And they wear them around. They love them because they get so many props from women. Right? Like, that, like every woman who sees that just like picks them up and hugs them and like gives them little kisses on their cheeks. They, and they love attention. So, but they also go on marches with me. I'm always marching because I'm so angry and I don't know what else to do. Right. Um, and we, we have great conversations about privilege. And I mean, these are little white boys in America of, you know, um, the middle class. I mean, they are so privileged. They have to know what their privilege is. They have to know the the morality behind um, understanding their privilege and extending that privilege to other people who are less privileged. Right. That is our, my job as a, a parent is to teach them um, where they are in the world and how to extend that to other people who don't have what they have. That is that is my job. Uh, we got to take a quick break. We have Lauren Groff here. Uh, the new book is Florida. This is Livewire Radio. We're here as part of the Portland Book Festival this week. We're at the Berta Street Pub, and we will be right back. Livewire is supported in part by Fully. Listen, you know in your heart of hearts that sitting around at work all day, that ain't great for you. But guess what? It's not just your heart of hearts. There's actually a lot of science backing that up, which is why Livewire partners with Fully, the company that believes people weren't meant to be glued to a chair all day. Fully has curated the best collection. And I've been there, by the way. I've met them. I've seen the stuff, and I can testify. They've got the best collection of standing desks, active sitting chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage us to move. Uh, I've got the TikTok stool. In fact, I'm sitting on it right now. I don't know if you can hear me rocking back and forth on it. But uh, the folks at Fully sent me this thing, and it is just a dream. Uh, It's comfortable to sit on, but it keeps me engaged in the work that I'm doing, keeps the blood flowing, and uh, and it's really improved my life as I uh, work to host your favorite public radio show and podcast, known as Livewire, in case you needed a reminder. Anyway, if you would like to be better at what you're doing and stay more engaged, check out Fully. Get your body moving in your workspace by going to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. Fully. Desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Welcome back to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello and a crowd of wonderful people here at the Alberta Street Pub in Portland, Oregon. We are uh, coming to you as part of the uh, Portland Book Festival uh, this week, and we have Lauren Groff here, who is the uh, writer most recently of the book Florida. I'm not trying to call you out, okay? That's like the worst setup to any question. That's like saying, like, don't take this the wrong way. Right. 
This is like absolutely the worst way for me to ask this question. Uh, but why start asking the questions properly now? Um, I saw uh, you're up for a huge uh, book award right now. And, um, and by the time this airs, I guess you'll know whether or not uh, you won. But I noticed on Twitter that you had been awarded something like a Southern uh, Literature Prize. Um, and then I also noticed a tweet from you saying, basically, art is not competitive. And you said, this is as a person who yourself is very competitive. But you said art is not a competition. So which is it? <laughs> No, it's not a competition. It's a conversation, right? You're having a conversation with the work that has come before you, that that you love, that you've integrated into your soul, and you're having a conversation with the future, right? If we have a future, and this is the the reason why I'm writing right now is um, to to at least give voice to climate change and the anxiety there. Um, so it is not a competition, and it's so dangerous, particularly to young artists, to believe that it is a competition because that stymies the work coming out. That 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 makes you see other artists as um, enemies as opposed to um, collaborators. Every single writer in this room is my collaborator right now. All of the writers of the past are my collaborators. And the readers who pick up the books are not my enemies. They're not my opposition. They're my collaborator on creating the finished product of the book. So I truly don't believe um, that that it is a competition. I'm massively competitive. In fact, my sister is a professional triathlete. She was in two Olympics. She um, just got fourth in the Kona uh, Ironman. Like, she's amazing. This is the family I'm from. Have um, you considered standing at the finish line of the triathlon? <laughs> holding the book that Barack Obama said was his favorite book of the year. <laughs> Casually, just pretending to read it. You don't even comment on it. And you're just holding it while you say, good job, sis. Yeah, no, okay. no, no. Right. She has way more Instagram followers than I have really? Twitter followers. So it's, yeah. Okay, but see, this is when you're talking about this. I feel like what I'm hearing is that you intellectually understand that art is not competitive. But is it hard to, I mean, if you get this big award that you're up for, or if you get other awards that you've gotten, that's got to feel good. How do you sort of... How do you allow yourself to enjoy that without buying into this competition model? So I, I would like to change the idea of what uh, an award is. An award is a minute in your life where people look at you and give you something that's beautiful, right? But not having it doesn't mean that you're bad, right? Not So I've been a finalist for the National Book Award before, and I had the best night of my life. Um, we went home after the ceremony, after I danced until I was sweaty, and we bought got champagne chipped up from, you know, room service. It was the best night ever because I wasn't expecting it. Putting a book into the world, finishing a book, that's the winning, right? It's not the competitions. It's not the sales. It's not anything like that. It's, it's having a, a thing in the world and being able to do it again. That's what matters the most. Wow. Lauren Groff, everyone. That thing that's in the world is the book Florida. You should check it out. All right, Lauren, uh, your latest book is titled Florida. It's, of course, about people who live in Florida, which, as we've established, is also where you live in real life. But we wanted to find out how well you really know the Sunshine State. So we have put a little test together. This is part of a segment that we call Let's Get Quizzical. Let's get quizzical, quizzical. I want to get quizzical. Let's see if you know your stuff. 
All right, here's how this is going to work. By the way, when you hear that we're going to do a quiz about Florida, okay, you might assume that it is going to be about weird stuff that goes on in Florida. But we here at Livewire, we feel like making fun of Florida is kind of mean. Thank you. It's kind of basic. Also, we were recently added on the public radio station in Miami, WLRN, and we really love them. So this quiz is full of amazing things that have happened in Florida. Some of them are so amazing we actually made them up. But some of them are real. So Lauren Groff, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to read you a news headline. You have to decide if it is a favorable or fake piece of Florida news. Okay. Here is a headline. Heartwarming. Florida Everglades, the only place in the world where crocodiles and alligators live together. False. That is... Completely true. That is favorable Florida news. There are both crocodiles and alligators living together in the Everglades. I don't believe it. So freshwater crocodiles then, apparently, which I thought only existed in Africa. Are you sure about this fact? This is what our research team found after 12 minutes on the internet, so I'm pretty sure they're right. Is this going to happen every time you get one wrong? You're going to question the entire... Yes, I do. It's my job as a writer to be oppositional, so yes, yes. This is going to be a long four minutes, everybody. Okay. Is this favorable or fake? Is this something that really happened in Florida? This headline, rolling in money, Miami debuts the first ATM to accommodate rollerbladers who need fast cash. I say that's false. That is real. It is favorable news. 1996, Citibanks put ramps leading up to their Miami Beach ATM so rollerbladers uh, would not go inside the bank with their actual skates on because I think it was probably like a liability. So you could rollerblade up to the ATM. But they're gone now because that was so long ago. Yeah. Um, I actually haven't been there in a while, although I did live in Miami Beach uh, for a period of time. Uh, When I was there, I don't think I remember any rollerbladable ATMs. Um, Okay, here's another one. Is this uh, fake or favorable? No crap. Florida Museum displays the world's largest collection of fossilized poop. Don't No, I know that's real because the Florida Museum is in Gainesville. You're absolutely right. That's right. (laughs) We have so much (laughs) in Gainesville. Yeah, there was a thousand pieces of poop from eight countries and 15 U.S. states. And uh, also, uh, some of them are for crocodilian species that were uh, from 2 to 32 million years old. Mm. How about this one? Um, Women about town. Miami, the only major U.S. city with female founder. Fake or favorable Florida news? Miami. Miami. Fake. Totally true. (laughs) 1875, Julia Tuttle uh, moved to the area as a homesteader with her family. Uh, She realized Miami could be a trade center between North and South America. She bought hundreds of acres of land, and Miami, of course, became a destination, which she considered uh, convinced multimillionaire Henry Flagler to bring the railroad to Miami. I think you just gave me another novel. (gasps) Yes! Can I get a co-producer credit when you win your next National Book Award? There are no producers in novels, but sure. Can I get in the dedication of your book? Okay. How about this one? Is this a, a fake or favorable piece of Florida news? Flying in the face of delays, Florida airports operate with the lowest collective number of delays in the country. I would say favorable. I like our airports. They're beautiful airports, but that is, in fact, <laughs> fake. I'm really fast. But here is some good, interesting news about, uh, about air travel in Florida. The first ever passenger flight, the first scheduled passenger flight took place in Florida. 
between St. Petersburg and Tampa on January 1st, 1941. It's a pretty short flight. Yeah, it was 21 miles, <laughs> and the flight took 23 minutes. <laughs> I feel like you could have driven. Yeah. But in one of those planes, it felt like an eternity. I bet it did. Yeah, you were white-knuckling it. Well, good job. Uh, you no, know I what? I wasn't keeping score, so we're just going to say you won, yes! Lauren Groff. Is that what you wanted to hear? Yes. Great. Yes, Lauren Groff, everybody. The book is Florida. Sweater season is here, but before it's time to unpack the knitwear, Alaska Airlines suggests one more taste of summer. Alaska Airlines now offers low fares on nonstops from Portland to Maui, Hawaii Island, Kauai, and Oahu. Plus, included in that low fare is assigned seating, over 400 free movies and TV shows, and power outlets at your seat in case your battery is low and the movie isn't over. Aloha, Alaska Airlines. Hey, it's Luke. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the show where we're bringing you all kinds of authors uh, from the Portland Book Festival. We're going to actually take a step back from the literary world, though, right now, and we're going to step into the comedy world with a little piece of tape. It's from April of 2017. It's comedian Caitlin Warehouser who won Portland Comedy Club Helium Comedies funniest person competition they've also performed in the bridgetown comedy festival bumbershoot pickathon and a bunch of other places caitlin is hilarious take a listen to this Woo! new season we into it i'm very happy it's vest season oh it's very important for my people uh I'm stoked, y'all. New season means essentially new gender for me. That's where I'm at. <laughs> Anyone else at my level would just, I don't know, it comes and goes. I don't, I feel like gender for me personally at this point is like a Facebook profile picture. Uh, when I find a cuter one, yeah, I update it. Yeah. <laughs> and that has been seasonally. So all winter, I identified as a PE teacher. <laughs> yep, as a gender, yeah. Yeah, do I coach ladies volleyball after school? As a gender, I do, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Oh, do I teach sex ed? Way too aggressively, yeah, I do. As a gender, you get it. Now, I'm stoked for spring because I get to step into my spring gender, which is bouncer at a feminist bookstore. <laughs> Come at me, I swear to God. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> it's a weird, it's just a weird, weird times, team, weird times. I've been trying to find stuff that we can all agree on. Uh, it's solving nothing. It's, in fact, quite futile, but it's fun for me. Uh, <laughs> And I found one thing, and that is the fact that as a country, as an entire nation of people, there's few things that we enjoy more than we do dominating species. That's a weird hobby we picked. <laughs> you think I'm wrong, I beg you to remember that we made pugs. <laughs> From wolves! <laughs> 
how did that go? What entrepreneurial weirdo was like, no, I see what you got here. Okay. The whole thing, apex predator, top of the food chain. Yeah, I hate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm going to want something tiny, but also useless. I'm going to make that. That's what I'm going to make. Yeah, first I'm going to take it snout all the way away. Why? No, I don't know. I just kind of want it to resemble the fetus of a different animal. Yeah, that's what I'm into. I want to confuse its butt from its face, like most of the time, most of the time. Just be confused as which is the business end. Yeah, I'm into it. I like that. <gasps> like a perfect tube of stupid. Can we make that? One more. I just need this to happen. I, I want it to sound like it's going to die at any second. Yeah, no, I like it now. It's good. Mm-hmm. It was just some guy that made that. <laughs> and we just let it happen. Team, we should all be in prison. Are you kidding me? We took a wolf and we were like, mm, more like a potato. Let's do that today. That's good. I like it. Mm -hmm. That's dark. That's weird. I'm not anti-pug. Calm down, Portland. I'm not saying throw them away. That'd be terrible. No. I'm saying I feed them extra cheese every time I see them. And yeah. I carry cheese with me, oh, and <laughs> I give it to the pugs. I have found one purpose for pugs. It is their truest, their truest purpose, and that is that they are perfect secret keepers. Do you know that? That's why we made them tube-shaped. <laughs> so we can stuff our secrets into them. <laughs> and it's fine, because you can tell a pug whatever you want, and you can see that nothing's getting in there. <laughs> Not a word of it. They don't even look at you with the same eyes at the same time. They're fine. They're fine. They're fine. That's all I do all day is wander around, find pugs, and just be like, Psst, hey, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to him. Hey, I think I'm recycling wrong. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm afraid I'm going to get arrested, too. Yeah. I have no idea where the lids go. <laughs> I've been throwing them into my neighbor's yard. <laughs> like frisbees for the squirrels. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. It's been a lot of fun. That is Caitlin Weyerhaeuser here on Livewire from back in 2017. This is Livewire Radio. We're coming to you as part of the Portland Book Festival this week, and we're talking about character building. Our next guest created 12 characters for his debut novel, They're There, and then had them converge at a fictional powwow in Oakland, California, uh, in a book that Margaret Atwood calls an astonishing literary debut. He has been getting a ton of attention for this book because the book is amazing. Please welcome Tommy Orange to Livewire. <laughs> Hi, Tommy. Welcome to Livewire. Hi, thanks for having me. I know that this has come up in a lot of interviews you've done, but I, I do find it fascinating. Uh, I, I've heard you say that you weren't like a book-obsessed kid. You weren't super into school. Like, that wasn't your books weren't your refuge as a kid. So how did you then get to the point where, where you did appreciate books and you are, you know, you wanted to be a writer and all that? I didn't like books at all. Um, I didn't read as a kid. 
and uh, I was good at sports, and I played roller hockey. And um, that is not the sport I thought you were going to say. <laughs> uh, that just sounds like a fairly that's like a pretty exotic sport. Was that a thing in Oakland? Yeah. So everyone knows that rollerblading happened in the '90s, and it was like we accepted it because we didn't realize how. Um, horrible it looked. <laughs> um, so I played roller hockey. I played on the streets and then indoor, and I I was good. I, like I got sponsored by a company, and they sent me equipment to play, and I played in tournaments and everything. And uh, it seemed to me like that could be something that I could do. And then everyone realized that it was so stupid looking. <laughs> <laughs> Did everybody show up at the roller hockey rink one day and just go, what are we doing, guys? No, worse. Worse, <laughs> it was paraded in Huntington Beach, the, the death of roller hockey and roller blading. Um, like bright colors and ramps in the back of the nets mm -hmm. and from pucks to balls and, um, and then death. And <laughs> <laughs> the life cycle of a sport. You know, it was my dream. Like it was, okay. it was dead. And then I became a musician, and then um, I got a degree in sound engineering, and I went to school right before. Um, this is like the history of me following things that die. So <laughs> I, I learned how to record on analog <laughs> and reel to reel. Um, so reel to reel and big soundboards and. Uh, all my professors were like, the MP3 will never, it will never, no one will ever believe in that. Like, it'll never replace you can't squash sound. Like, the, the dynamics of disc. sound will never be conquered by, you know, the digital age. And then it did. And then I, <laughs> and then I graduated, and every skill that I learned was completely like useless. Um, I'm a little worried about writing now. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I think maybe we met sort of a We met the Black Widow <laughs> yeah. of things that it's Tommy Orange. Okay, so Tommy, uh, this book was amazing and I want to try to before we run out of time here and for the people who've read it and our fans and the people hearing this on the radio, I want I do want to I want to talk about the book a little bit. I know you worked on it for a long time. You had, I, I heard you say you sort of had the ending of the book before you wrote the book. You kind of knew where this book was going. These characters, these 12 characters, did you start with a really long list and whittle it down to these 12 characters? Or were you writing the book and then you were like, we need someone else to bring in this part of the story? Uh, all these folks that are converging on this, on this, this made up powwow. Um, yeah, so the idea came to me. I just found out I was uh, going to have a son. And the idea for the novel came in a single moment, and it was that a whole bunch of Native people's lives would converge at a, at a powwow at the Oakland Coliseum, which there was never a powwow at the Oakland Coliseum. And I didn't write into it at first because uh, I was just having a son and like, I was sort of servant to the slug. <laughs> but a year after he was born, I started like waking up at 5 in the morning and writing after he went to bed. Uh, into this novel and I just had sort of the container of this cataclysmic event in mind and so there wasn't too much like I want to have this character or this character it was just sort of auditioning voices mm. um, through this writing process and whatever seemed like it could stick or whatever felt like it 
could sustain as a voice, I kept writing into it. Um, can you explain for folks uh, that haven't been to a powwow, like the significance, and I don't even mean the like history of the powwow, but like in 2018, the significance of for Native people of a powwow, of a chance to get together? Uh, I think it means a different thing for a lot of people. I think for Native identity, there's a range of proximity to how people feel about their identity with being Native. Um, the powwow itself is is not that old of a tradition. Like it sort of became more popular after World War II, and um, there was relocation um, in the 1950s and 60s where people were encouraged to move to cities from reservations. Whereas before, like off the reservation is a term that you hear, like you legally weren't supposed to leave the reservation. Really? Yeah. So then assimilation and sort of this, it was actually part of like termination policy and genocidal policy around like um, kill the Indian, save the man sort of thinking. Um, But other people left because they didn't even want to be in the reservation or they went to war, and then after the war, they stayed in cities. So powwows, I thought it was a, a perfect centerpiece for, for the novel because when you have people moving to cities from all different reservations, in every major city, you'll find an Indian center. And these are intertribal sort of like places where people from all over the country come to be part of one community. And so powwows and the urban Indian experience, which is sort of the theme of my novel, uh, there's just a parallel there that made a lot of sense to write into. What's this, like, what is the scene for a native person who doesn't grow up on a reservation and what's the experience like? I mean, for me, it's mostly like my dad and going back to Oklahoma um, to see relatives or my grandma staying Because we us. should mention that your your father is Native American, your mother is, is, is uh, white. Is white. Uh-huh. So and you'd go back and forth? Yeah. And, uh, you know, my dad's like super Indian. Like he's like, he grew up in Oklahoma. Uh, his first language is Cheyenne, which is the tribe I'm from. He didn't see a white person until he was like five years old. Mm. Wow. And his grandparents on a horse-drawn carriage went to the grocery store um, <laughs> and sat him on a sack of flour. That's where he saw his first white person, which is the perfect place to see your first white person. <laughs> Sitting on a sack of flour. <laughs> and your dad is not 200, right? This was happening in the 19, like, mm-hmm. 50s or 60s mm-hmm. or something? Well, he was born in 1945, so... Yeah, so, like, um, that's, this is relatively recent in yeah, this country's history. No, he, he, even among Indians, he lived an older sort of Indian life. Wow. You know, he, he was an engineer at the Lawrence Berkeley Labs. Like, he spoke Cheyenne in our house, but my mom is white, and she was a crazy hippie that met him in New, northern New Mexico at a peyote commune. Um, and so they raised us in Oakland. I was, I was on a street of, of kids that were five different families on our block, all biracial families. Like, uh, he would speak Cheyenne like uh, Whoopamots for salt, and she would say Mapowitz, and like every piece of Cheyenne would be reversed and inverted and like unlearned immediately because <laughs> because like you can't raise somebody with the language unless both parents speak it. You can't immerse. Your mom's Cheyenne was dicey at best. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to ask a, a question, which is that this book is being really. It has been really um, sort of warmly received. There have been rapturous reviews written about it. A lot of people talking about you as this sort of new voice 
uh, for Native American writers and comparing you to folks like Sherman Alexie and things like that. I have to imagine that feels like a lot of pressure and super weird. What is the experience like for you to write something that is already being sort of held up as, as maybe a, a, a whole new chapter and a whole new way to talk about the Native American experience? Super weird. And almost uh, no one has mentioned that you're a former roller hockey player. I know. That gets almost no space in this conversation. It's why I wanted to get a platform is to talk about it. <laughs> it was, the Once in a Generation novel about the Native American experience was just the camel's nose under the tent to talk about roller hockey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really hard to process. Um, I almost don't know how to talk about it because the book hasn't even been out for six months. And um, there's a lot of sort of people talking about it before and a lot of hype. But also, like, you know, these things happen and then they, they die as soon as they come out. And that very much didn't happen for the book. And it, you know, sold the TV option to HBO. And like, oh, really? It's a lot of crazy stuff happening. Yeah. And, like, I got an email from Darren Aronofsky that he loves the book. <laughs> really? And I mentioned him in the book as, yeah. toward the end. Um I just try to ground myself in in things that make sense to me because you can't process this kind of stuff in this short amount of time. Yeah. What would you hope would be people's take? I guess I'll say non-native people who read this book. What would you hope their takeaway might be from it? Or what would they what would they learn? So there have been a lot of horrible questions on the tour from non-native people. Um one of the worst ones is like, it's not even a question. It's like, it's so sad. Sort of like the statement about the lives of these characters. And to me, like the characters share so many biographical facts with my own life. Mm. And, and, and a lot of people that I know, and it's like to be dismissive and, and sort of like minimizing experience is like sad um is not getting the point there's a term this historical trauma that sort of wore out its meaning for me because i've known it for so long but there's a way that history affects people over time and generations and people that know that experience it's a very real experience that you can see in the look in your mom or your grandma's eyes um you sort of know how history plays out for people. Either you benefit from it or you suffer from it. And part of why I wrote the book was to try to express through story, like how that plays out. And this simple expression of that's sad. It was such a privileged sort of response to Mm -hmm. how history affects people, all people over time. As if just because somebody's... Uh, face challenges, then the only way to describe their exis- their existence is sad. Mm-hmm. Like, what is what is your life? Is your life happy? Are you like like you just have a happy life? Because you're not asking you me right because you don't even know the answer to that question. <laughs> Listen, I just can't recommend the book highly enough. It's there, there. Tommy Orange, thanks for being on live. Thank you. Really appreciate it. This is Livewire Radio. We will be right back. A special thanks this week to Daniel Lennon of Portland, Oregon and Jarena 
Donovan, also of Portland, Oregon. Daniel and Jarena are part of the Livewire member community. What does that mean? Well, that means they are supporting our show with a donation each month. And that, I am not exaggerating when I tell you, is the only way we can do this program week in and week out. We would not be here uh, bringing you another episode of Livewire if not for the help of folks like Daniel and Jarena. So thank you so, so much. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. This week we're talking about character building. We're here as part of the Portland Book Festival. And if our musical guest this hour were a character in a movie, she would probably seem a little unrealistic because this character would have played folk music clubs as a teen in Chicago, then collaborated with some of the biggest names in music in her 20s, then earned a doctorate in clinical psychology... Then sort of re-embrace life as a beloved solo artist, which is where we find her now. Her latest album is Everyday Street. Please welcome the totally real, totally not made up Lucy Kaplansky to Livewire. Lucy Kaplansky, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. Uh, Okay, so you have had, uh, you've lived many lives. Yeah, it's a long, twisted story. What was it about <laughs> about psychology that, as you're, you know, playing music and and being kind of sort of creative in that way? What was it about psychology that you thought, yeah, okay, that could be a thing I want to do? Because it's like a lot. You got to put a lot of time into that, into becoming Doctor Kaplansky. I did. I I think um, I wanted to figure out what was wrong with me, and there were many, many things <laughs> wrong with me. And you know, I was in therapy at the time, and I thought it would be interesting, and it was. It was. It just wasn't my calling. It wasn't what I really wanted to do. Uh, has it? Uh, did that kind of awareness and like learning about human behavior and stuff, did that get into or impact your writing, your songwriting at all? You know, I think um, learning everything I did and, and being in my own psychoanalysis, which I was, I think just impacted everything about the way I see the world and and understand people and their motivations. And so I think it, it is, it's affected the way I think in general, which then sort of, you know, morphs into the way I write. Did it work... Like the idea of trying to figure out what was going on with you. Okay, I'm going to become uh, a psychologist and then I'm going to be able to kind of fix myself a little bit. Like, did you fix yourself? Well, it's interesting you ask that because it was actually in my own therapy that I figured out I didn't want to be a psychologist. <laughs> After all, uh, I want Sorry, that's to... not really funny. There's like $80,000 of student loan debt behind that realization. More. And but... I'm laughing about it. So no, you were okay. in, th- you were a therapist, yeah. you were in therapy, yes. and in talking to your therapist, yes. you realized I shouldn't be a therapist. Yes. That is the ultimate irony of my life. That'd be like me going on another radio show and realizing <laughs> I shouldn't host this radio show. That's funny. Oh, okay. Well, that's going to get me through the rest of this episode. I just need a very small amount of positive feedback, which you just got from Lucy Kaplansky. Uh, what song are we going to hear? So um, this is called Keeping Time. Uh, When my daughter was little, we live in Greenwich Village, and I used to walk her to school and pick her up from school every day. And um, one of the dads I would see in the neighborhood almost every day for years was Philip Seymour Hoffman. His kids went to my daughter's school. So this is about sort of sharing the neighborhood with him. I take walks in the mornings when my kids come to school. I see parents walking children like we used to do. In the mornings for years, 
We headed down that same street I'd see you and your strawberry blonde family I'd see you scruffy and smiling after school in the yard Or the park on Horatio where the kids play till dark Our Sunday morning little league on chilly Hudson Pier Just the movie star father freezing with us in the April air In the bright morning sun or late afternoon glow We kept time with the rhythms mothers and fathers know February morning The news was on I froze when I heard your name My neighborhood king was gone You'd been chasing the dragon Needles still in your skin Ace of spades all around you Aces always win After 23 years The great actor of our day after ten years of fatherhood, it took you just the same For the kill that lies in wait like the cruelest undertow Is stronger than all a man builds and loves and dreams and knows And I'll see you again up on that screen But I'll remember you best on our Baseball cap and jeans, kids and stroller in tow. Amid the flowers of spring or January snow. Keeping time with the rhythms mothers and fathers know. Four winters come and gone. Spring is here again I saw your kids the other day An old woman with them And a chill went through me When I looked into her face She was the picture of you Just wizened with age And all at once I knew Something sorrowful and true She was walking with them Still keeping time with you Cause the rhythms they go on They just go on without you That is Lucy Kaplansky Here on Livewire Her latest album is Everyday Street Available only on her website LucyKaplansky.com Thanks, Lucy. All right, that is going to do it for our show. Thank you so much this week to our fabulous guests, Tommy Orange, Lauren Groff, Caitlin Weyerhaeuser, and Lucy Kaplansky. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Foley, and the Jupiter Hotel. Special thanks this show to Amanda Bullock, 
and all of the great people at Portland Book Festival and Literary Arts. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. Tim Harkins is our production director. And Christian Sager is our marketing associate. Our editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom and A. Walker Spring. And Elena Passarello is our announcer. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Our on-air mix by Corey Schreppel. Thanks, as always, to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by support from our members this week. Thanks to Willie Toth of Citro Woolly, Washington. That's where my wife grew up. I don't know if they know each other, but Willie, thank you. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, visit livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. PRI, Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.